Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. So we have a bit of a special episode today in that it's a reshare episode from summer 2021 because we found this episode and this guest in particular so incredibly helpful with all of the body image disruptions and negative thoughts that a lot of people experience in the summer months. So we're really happy to welcome back on Dr. Lindsay Kite, who is the co-author of the book More Than a Body, Your Body is an Instrument, Not an Ornament, and the co-director of the nonprofit Beauty redefined, along with her identical twin sister, Lexi. On today's episode, we are digging deep into self-objectification and body image, how to build body image resilience in the face of body image disruptions, hello, throughout the whole summer, and when well-meaning body compliments can do more harm than good. We also talk a lot about how beauty companies play into this self-objectification with their marketing, even if they're well-meaning. So whether you were around when this episode first came out or you're new to the podcast, We heard from a lot of clients and a lot of you that this episode was so, so helpful, especially in the summer months, that we know you'll have some really tangible takeaways from this episode. And if you want more episodes like this to fill your ears with body-neutral goodness throughout the summer, in the show notes, I always put a section called You'll Love These Episodes Too, where every week we link a few episodes on a similar topic, so you can lean into those more if you're interested. And if you don't know where to find the show notes on the app that you are listening to, normally you can just click on the album artwork, which is the picture of Christina and I on your phone, and then kind of scroll down or scroll to the left or right, depending on the app that you're using to listen to your podcast. All right, without any further ado, let's dive right in with Dr. Lindsay Kite. We want to just jump right in. I would love if you could start talking about what is the impact in your personal experience of being an identical twin on body image growing up? Because I actually grew up with a mom who is an identical twin. So I saw this from the daughter's point of view, but I would love to have it from the actual person who is the twin's point of view too. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm so interested in twin experiences. So for me, it doesn't, I don't approach this from like an academic perspective. I just approach it from a personal perspective and real personal curiosity about what that looks like for other people. But it has definitely played an impact for me and Lexi and our body image. I remember from the youngest possible age, some of my earliest memories are just standing right next to Lexi. We're wearing really similar clothes, usually like the same thing in different colors And having people just look us up and down as soon as they see us, as soon as they meet us for the first time or see us again after, you know, a few days. And the whole game every time is trying to figure out who's who, who, who has the, the rounder face, the more crooked teeth. I'm trying to think of real things that people have said to us because there's just this constant comparison and they don't keep it to themselves. They say it out loud, like, all right, Lexi's the one with the mole on her nose. Lindsay's the one who does her hair or like Lindsay's a little bit fatter or whatever. Like these things came out all the time. 
So um, we were constantly comparing ourselves to each other as well. We felt a lot of competition with each other to be better, smarter, faster, whatever it was, especially through elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I think the role that it plays in our body image is that we were constantly looking at each other. Like a regular person might look in the mirror, see photographs of themselves, videos or whatever, and try to get a gauge for what they look like. An identical twin who looks really, really similar can just look at their sister from every possible angle in every different outfit, doing lots of different activities. And in a sense, self-objectify because I'm imagining, I'm valuing her for what she looks like and imagining that as my body and how I should value it and being embarrassed at times and, you know, being proud at times. It's a different level of self-objectification that I don't think we were really aware of until we started to do this research. Yeah. And I will say like, as growing up with a mom who had their own struggles with body image and definitely, you know, like all moms, at least in our parents' generation, right? Like most of them were dealing with this kind of stuff, right? So then just being a kid, you see that, you emulate it and everything. There's a whole nother level when your mom has an identical twin and they are, you know, both talking about like, oh, I don't think you should wear that. Or like, yeah, that looks good on you. You know, like you said, all of the objectification, but then there's even another level because my my aunt and my mom have been extremely close their entire lives, right? So even for the past, I think, 10, 15 years, they've lived one street apart from each other. And until they were in law school, they also lived together. So except for those like, you know, middle years, they've always been physically close. And then obviously like emotionally, mentally really close. It's like they have ESPN or something, you know? So they're like always laughing at the same things, you know, all complete twinning things, which is fun to watch. But at the same time, when you have that kind of like body image diet angle, and you're a kid growing up with that of these two people comparing each other all the time it's kind of like am I supposed to be doing that in addition to all of the other messaging that we receive oh totally a different level they're prodding each other on and they do it in out of a sense of you know looking out for each other and wanting to be their best and everything but when that objectification is mixed in with all the unrealistic ideals of our culture and when kids are watching too, I think that just really heightens your awareness of how important thinness and beauty and appearance are, not only in your own family, your immediate family and the people you look up to the most, but also just in the rest of your culture, how important it is in your life. You mentioned a couple times um, self-objectification. And so for those of people who haven't read your book yet, please go and read it. But for them, for those who haven't, could you describe what you mean by self-objectification so everyone's on the same page? Yeah. So self-objectification, we feel like is really the missing piece of the puzzle in these body image conversations that people have been having for the last 20 years or so. Self-objectification is the practice of envisioning your body from the outside you're really just monitoring it for how it looks, imagining how it appears to other people, even when you're by yourself. So part of women's mental energy is consistently dedicated to monitoring how we appear. And then we view and evaluate and value ourselves that way too, purely from an outsider's perspective. So self-objectification, it takes this holistic sense of self where you are in your body. Of course, you're a visible person with an appearance that matters to other people and their perception has an impact on you, but it makes that the only focus and it splits us from ourselves. So it takes us from inside our bodies as our home, as carefree kids, without awareness of how other people see us, without that self-judgment really seeping in and preventing us from really living our fullest lives and being home in our bodies. 
And it splits us so that we are then watching our bodies from the outside, making sure they look right, that we're posed in the right ways, wearing the right things. And this splits our identities in two, from the whole person to the person who is really fixated on appearance, where part of your mental energy is just sapped. It's distracted. Your physical energy is also distracted when you're adjusting your clothes all the time, when you're trying to sit in the most flattering position or walk in a way that, you know, you're keeping your gut sucked in and your chin up so the double chin isn't showing. This self-objectification is what keeps us trapped in our bodies as prisons instead of our bodies as our homes. Well, one, I love the name for it because it's so clear and you're right. It isn't talked about a lot in the body image um, work that's really talked about in the, in the most part. But one thing that I see it a lot in, and I have a two and a half year old daughter and I see it in her. She doesn't think about how things fit her or what she's doing or if she's capable of doing something. She's just living her life. And in so many ways in observing her, it's really shown me over time just how obvious the culture is on doing this to us um, rather than it's something that like it's innately in in women um, to, to kind of think about themselves too. And another layer that you talked about in the book, not just self-objectification, but that normative discontent where it's like how we bond over hating our bodies too and like wanting to change it. And I, um, I, I love how you said in there that you write it off as just another part of womanhood. And it's not, it's not supposed to be a part of womanhood. And I'd love for you to talk about how this came to be and why, why do we hate our bodies so much to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. It's not natural. It's not natural that we are so fixated on our appearance that we gain our full value and self-worth and self-esteem from how we look and getting positive feedback and validation on how we look. This is something that's developed over the years. And I love that you brought up the little kid thing because that is, there's a reason we start the book with that, with that kind of metaphor of a little kid on the beach, hunched over a sandcastle, splashing in the water, no care at all for how their belly looks in their swimming suit or anything like that. And that's something that we want people to be able to go back to in their own minds. Maybe you find a picture, a video, or a memory in your mind of just knowing that you really lacked that self-consciousness because we are all capable of experiencing that. And we get there at certain times, which we can talk to, we can talk a little bit more about in a bit. Um, but to get back to your question on how unnatural it is that we feel such hatred toward our bodies, it's all part of this objectifying culture that we grow up in. When women are valued as objects, as things, as parts to be viewed and judged and ogled and really used and consumed by other people, um, especially in a patriarchal society where men do hold most of the power. And so our views of ourselves and of women in general become shaped by the way men see women, which women are most sexually appealing, which women can provide the most value to men in our society. And that seeps into our own psyche. It seeps into the way that we see ourselves and view and value ourselves and other people, not just our own bodies. And so we talk about in the book, the ways little kids who are carefree on the beach, that changes when the objectification of our culture starts to become more obvious to them. So we talk about people getting pushed into the waters of objectification, which is where it becomes normalized by their moms making comments about what they're eating or how their bodies look. It could come from uh, seeing their older sister's magazines or a TV show where all the women look one way. They're all really thin and tall and young and have bodies that are, tend to be similar shapes. 
all of these things will seep into the way we perceive the world and then the way we perceive our bodies. And it only gets worse as we get older and we become more immersed in social media, in advertising that shows women all consistently looking the same way. And, you know, there's only one way to be successful, healthy, attractive, and desirable. If you look at media, you know, especially mainstream media, we know that's not true in real life, but it still fully shapes the way we relate to our own bodies. And that's where that normative discontent comes in. In that type of a society, of course, it's expected, it's normal, that you're just going to be disgusted with your body because you will never live up to those ideals. Our culture is completely banking on the idea that you'll be insecure and self-conscious and just primed for all of those products and services that we're being sold every single day from every single angle, even from people we love that are selling products that will supposedly fix your flaws. These flaws are being invented every day. And then the solutions are being sold to us every day by the exact same companies and people who invent the flaws. So it's an economic system. It's a, a multi-billion dollar system that completely banks on us just being dissatisfied enough, but also hopeful enough that we can get there with the right products and services. It's just within reach. If only you know we can get our self-control together and we can get the right diet plan going or buy the right cosmetic surgery that's going to take that self-consciousness away. And it is a losing game. It is completely a losing game because if we are playing under the rules of objectification, where if our objects look just right, then we'll be happy, healthy, desirable, valued, whatever, it does not work. The most beautiful women in the world are not necessarily the happiest women in the world. They don't always have the most successful relationships. They, they still get cancer. They still get depression, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a matter of kind of breaking the glass in order to um, reveal how harmful that normative discontent is. And we, we talk about this all the time on the podcast in terms of how the diet and fitness and kind of health industries really do create these problems like, hey, we have the solution. You just have to pay us for this 30-day program, right? But it doesn't stop there. And when you're thinking about the objectification of women's bodies, like you gave a really good example in the book about Dove, right? And so companies are getting like woke to like, ooh, people don't like to be called, you know, super, you know, unfit and unhealthy and unmotivated and all this stuff. So we're going to show more diversity of bodies and everybody is beautiful and embrace your flaws and whatever. But then at the same time, it's saying like, you have flaws. It's okay to have them, but you still have them. But then we're also going to sell you at the same time, anti-aging creams and anti-wrinkle things and anti-cellulite and smooth your underarms and all this stuff. It just, it's everywhere. Yep. <laughs> the Dove thing is, I think, especially kind of sinister. And it's hard to say that because Dove overall is like a very nice company. People would think of that and hold that up as the prime example of how a company can really uplift women and value body diversity and all of that kind of stuff. But from the beginning of all of this body image talk, um, of course, people cite like the 2003 Dove video as the first example of really seeing body diversity. It's just a full range of women, different colors, shapes, and sizes in their underwear in public. And so people always go back to that. The problem is when these companies are starting to really capitalize and monetize body positivity and, and people's real hunger for wanting to see reality, wanting to see themselves and their loved ones reflected in media, especially in positive ways, which was so rare in the early 2000s. Um, even today, it's kind of rare in mainstream media to see women over a certain size and over a certain age that are presented as you know the main character, the love interest, a protagonist. Um, someone who's not just 
constantly struggling with a weight issue and every scene starts with them standing on a scale and then crying, you know, it's so frustrating. And so these companies, they, they see that urge, that hunger for people to want to see reality and they capitalize on that and they call it body positivity. Um, but they are, like you said, still selling products meant to supposedly fix these flaws that we have. And so, you know, at the heart of it, isn't just a good natured, you know, wanting to make the world a better place. It's very much money at the heart of it. And you can see that in the way sales, especially for Dove, increased exponentially after um, that Real Beauty program started. We have to be really conscious and critical of the ways companies and advertisers will use our hunger for reality and for positive body image against us to sell us more products, more services. Because when they keep you focused on your appearance, even in ways that seem a little bit more um, innocent, like thinking about the way your armpits look or whatever, think about, are they selling that same product to men? Do men care about these things too? Are men asked to care about the size of their pores, the wrinkles on their faces, the color of their hair, what their armpits look like? No, they are not. And so you know that this is sexist. This is market driven. This is all a ploy to get you to think more about your appearance, self-objectify more, and then try to ease that self-consciousness and shame with their products or services. And it's, oh my God, there's so many layers to it too. And it's so true. It's so sexist, right? But I'm thinking about it too. Like you're seeing it even now on Instagram in some of the, um, in the body positive, body acceptance world. And it's, it's, wonderful to see people embracing their bodies more and but I think you're right about how it still is focused on the body and justifying why their body is a certain way and we Dana and I were talking earlier this week about a lot of the Instagram posts that we're seeing recently like I have a pooch because I have a uterus or I have a pooch because I'm postpartum and it's just all this like Again, it's bringing the focus back to their body and saying, hey, it's okay that I have this, but here, let me justify it to you. I don't have to justify why I have any part of my body. Men don't have to justify why they have, you know, why they might have a little bit, you know, extra love in the center or anything. They don't have to do any of that. They don't even have to call it extra love in the center. It's just, I show up for work, I put my pants on, I go, even like sizing and just all of the things. And so to me, I think even now, even though it's nice, and as a postpartum mom, it is nice to see people posting about how um, how they're postpartum and they're accepting their postpartum body. But again, it still feels a little like not quite there yet. Like it's just not enough. I think you're right. And I think a lot more people are starting to pick up on that uneasiness they feel when so many of these posts are still centered around, this is what my body looks like, and I'm either apologizing for it or celebrating it for what it looks like. Lexi and I always talk about how we'll know that real progress is being made against objectification toward valuing women for who they are, what they contribute, what they do and feel and think, as opposed to how they look. As soon as women of all shapes and sizes and ethnicities and appearances are celebrated and featured in media, whether it's getting tons of likes and interaction on social media or being paid in major media campaigns and um, and products and everything, when we aren't talking about how they look, when they aren't forced to talk about it as characters in the script, and when all of the other characters around them or the text about it isn't fully centered on, well, she looks like this and she's still confident, you know, or 
she does this thing and, and she's trying really hard to fix it. But in the meantime, she's going to be so brave and so proud to show up on this platform. That is where the objectification is still just at the forefront. We are not objects. We do not need to apologize for or celebrate the way we look in order to live our best lives and be incredible examples for the other people who are watching us. Like even on social media, people sometimes push back against this thought because they're like, okay, well, Instagram, social media is a visual platform. So how do you want me to promote body positivity without doing the underwear photo with my rolls showing and my you know cellulite on full display every week? And my thought is, all right, that may be a step in the right direction for a lot of people, because you're right. It is really good to see bodies that look like yours and that look different from all of the supermodels that we've seen in media throughout our whole lives, even in the most mundane roles. And it's in some ways, it um, it's great to normalize that stuff, but we cannot stop there. That is one step toward helping women to not hate their bodies and then value themselves as more, but it's not the only step. And I think the reason that so many people get stuck there is because there is so much validation and engagement and praise that comes with putting your body on display, regardless of how it looks. You're gonna get men and women's eyes. You're gonna get those likes, the comments and everything. And I think people use that to their advantage and it feels good to get that, but it is still within those same rules of my body as an object, my body as the most important thing about me and my appearance being central to my self-worth. Right. And all of the value is still then centered on the attention, whether it's, you know, the male gaze, the female gaze. I really like how you talked about in the book, like this is a lot of women mostly are dealing with this, but it's also like the gay male gaze, right? Like, so there's a big portion of that too. And I wanted to talk about something that you brought up also is like, in, you know, in this light, we kind of have this, these like two camps of body positivity. And I know you both got like a lot of pushback about this when you were like, it's not enough to just be posting, you know, for everybody in many different like abilities, size, shapes, colors, everything to be showing off your body. So we're more normalizing this, but we can't stop there because we're still placing the value on the objectification of our bodies, right? Like we have to go farther. So we're changing the culture. So it doesn't matter so much, right? Like it's not just what I look like is okay. Like it's okay that I'm posting this. I'm in a larger body, right? But so one way that people try to combat that is when somebody who's not in a straight size body is doing something, you know, brave by sharing like an underwear selfie or something. There are floods of people who are like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You know, all these like well-meaning body comments. But you talk about in the book how these well-meaning, seemingly positive comments can actually do, and compliments can do more harm than good because they're perpetuating the idea that we're most valued for our looks and we're always being evaluated because of that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. When we talk to people, when we comment online, we show them what we value. And so if you see somebody, and even if it's someone you know really well and love a lot, the first thing you say about them or to them might be something appearance related. And I think this is an issue because again, it shows you what you really value in a person. And in our hearts and souls, we should be valuing so much more. When we are talking to people about how they look, even when it's really well-meaning, well-intended comments, we are inadvertently putting their appearance back at the forefront of what's most important. 
in their minds and in our minds. It can work as a constant reminder to people that I'm looking at you. Everyone's looking at you. We like the way you look right now. Maybe we're reacting really big right now because we didn't like the way you looked before. And it can really push people into this vicious cycle of self-objectifying over and over again. And a point I want to make about the reason why this online BOPO stuff can be kind of tricky is because it puts the focus not only on look at my body, here I am, but the focus is on body image as being, um, positive body image as being directly related to feeling beautiful. And what I want to do is dismantle that myth because positive body image is not believing your body looks good. It's knowing your body is good regardless of how it looks. This is a quote I first said in my TED talk in 2017, and it's gone all over the internet in multiple variations. We put that at the forefront of the book for a reason. It's kind of like our key quote, because it turns almost everyone's ideas of positive body image on their head. I don't want you to just focus on feeling beautiful. I don't even really care that much if you feel beautiful, because I want you to know that you're more than beautiful. And this is so important because your perception of your beauty is going to shift and change with the wind. It is going to go up and down every day, regardless of how hard you try, because your ideas of beauty are shaped by how other people look at you and act toward you. It's shaped by what you're wearing that day, what your hormones are doing, what your reflection in the mirror looks like. And, and that can just go up and down constantly. So that cannot be our North Star. Feeling beautiful cannot be our goal. Feeling neutral, that's a good goal too. But more importantly, I want people to know that their bodies are good because your body is an instrument, not an ornament. When we compliment people on how they look, especially when we're talking about their body size in particular, we are reinforcing this idea that smaller is better. Because almost every time someone's commenting on someone's physical size, they're commenting on how they look smaller or um, their clothes are really flattering or whatever. It's always a lot of coded terms for, you look skinnier than I thought you were, or you look skinnier than you did before. And of course, a lot of people are, are seeking that. In this diet culture, everybody's trying to get skinnier. But what we don't know when we are commenting on people's weight loss is how they did it, why they did it, what might be behind it if it was intentional. You would not believe the thousands of messages that Lexi and I have received through Beauty Redefined of people saying, um, people never complimented me until I started to lose a lot of weight. What they didn't know is I had stomach cancer or my mom died and I had serious depression and just could not eat for months. We got so many messages like that, that I want it to be such a wake up call to people to know that they need to change that script in their minds that says, this person is thinner, I must say something. Because you are not always commenting on a happy thing. You might be reinforcing someone's eating disorder. You might be pushing them into it. Yeah, and not even just like from an eating disorder standpoint, and you know, me and Dana specialize in eating disorder work as clinicians, but, Another thing too is we also, like you said about stomach cancer, we don't know what um, health condition we might be ignoring or glorifying, right? At the same time, I remember me postpartum, I lost a significant amount of weight and it was not intentional. I remember being physically scared about my health and worried about what was going on. Dana remembers and so many people during that time 
commented about how great I looked, how my postpartum body was great. Like, oh, I bet you, like, you look so happy and healthy. Like, I'll never forget that. Or you've never looked better is probably one of the most insulting of the well-intentioned ones before because it says, oh, you've never really looked great before. And now <laughs> you look so amazing. Meanwhile, like in my own mind, in my own heart, I was having conversations with my husband, like something's physically wrong, like something's happening. And I don't know what to do about it. And to me, like, we don't know what's going on. And so when you say something like, oh, you've never looked healthier, when you don't know what's going on in someone's internal mind, that is a really scary place to to put someone in and to make them maybe even less inclined to go seek out help because they might think to themselves, oh, well, everyone else seems to think this is fine. Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe I don't need to do anything about it. Maybe this is good. Maybe I should just ignore this. Meanwhile, you know, you might have thyroid cancer. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what happened to me. But I'm just giving, like, an example. But meanwhile, you're going a longer period of time without not looking into stuff. Um, and and meanwhile, and, so, and, you know, there's so many layers to it, too. And then you go to the doctor, and the doctor ignores it and just says, oh, great, you look wonderful. This is just what happens you know, when you breastfeed it's like I don't think this is what happens when we breastfeed and so there's like all these different things that go into it and um I don't know I just I really I really related to that in a lot of ways and I think it's such a dangerous thing to do and you mentioned you call it in your book body image disruptions I think and um what I love how you guys described in the beautiful metaphor about the ocean and the beach and all, I loved it, um, was that you talked about having the capacity to not only survive them, those body image disruptions and those periods of time where people are saying stuff to you or you're internally bullying yourself, but to grow and thrive from them. And I know that for a lot of people who are beginning the idea of body image work and wanting to get to the root of their body image, this can be so challenging to work through when you have this negative reinforcement happening outside. Um, and so I would love for you to talk about that intentional choice around how we work through them and what you know kind of advice you give for people who are working on this and just getting started. Yeah, body image disruptions are essential to our progress. And I think that's what people forget about and what people are a little bit nervous about in all of this body image work because developing positive body image and working through this doesn't mean you'll never go through difficulties again. It doesn't mean you're not going to continue to have that shame and body anxiety be stirred up throughout your life. This isn't something that you get to now I have positive body image. I'm at this plateau and I will stay there forever. No, this is a continuous process. And so the idea of that sounds overwhelming for people, but what I really want people to know is that this is such an achievable process. And more importantly, it is so much more fulfilling and happier and healthier than whatever cycle you've been on. When we go through disruptions and we cope with them in ways that do not serve us, we are putting ourselves back on that same cycle for the rest of our lives. We'll never get out of it. You might feel temporary relief because you've been numbed by alcohol or prescription drugs or, uh, you know, the rush of disordered eating and the distraction that comes from that. You might be temporarily placated by 
um, whatever diet you decide to go on because you were so ashamed last week when you wore that outfit and saw the picture of yourself that now you're going to do this crash diet. Now you're going to make plans for cosmetic surgery. You're going to buy new clothes, whatever it is that may temporarily, like maybe for seconds, minutes, or days make that shame go away, but you are postponing the real pain that will keep on coming. You are postponing what the actual solution should be. So to define what I mean by disruptions, to back up a little bit, we all are in this body image comfort zone. Not all of ours are the same, but for most women, it is this state of normative discontent. You feel uncomfortable, disgusted with your body, embarrassed about it. In that state of normative discontent, you're also self-objectifying, where you're placing so much value on how your body looks that you're not even able to focus on how you feel, what you do, how you experience the world through this body. You're floating in these waters of, object of objectification in what we call a comfort zone life raft. So pretty flimsy. It's not great, but it's kind of getting the job done for now. You're comfortable enough. Then these waves of disruption come through. A wave of disruption is anything that changes the way you feel about your body. It changes your relationship or your perception to yourself. So it could be somebody making a comment about your weight, um, negative or positive, that pushes you in the wrong direction or brings your appearance back to the forefront of your mind. Um, it might be an injury or an illness that changes the way you relate to your body. It could be pregnancy, a breakup. We all place so much blame on our bodies for the hard things that we go through, even if they're not directly related to our bodies. So these are body image disruptions. We all respond to these disruptions in one way or another. Unfortunately, most of us will find this very familiar that we take the first path of sinking deeper into shame through harmful coping mechanisms like the things I named, um, disordered eating, self-harm, very much on the rise, unfortunately. Um, and that may numb us for a moment, but ultimately we are worse off than before, not only in our lives, but in our body image. We blame our bodies. We hate our bodies. The second path that people take that's extremely common, the most common, is to cling to those uncomfortable comfort zones through hiding or fixing our bodies. So fixing would be like cosmetic surgery, going on a crash diet, um, buying new clothes, all those things I mentioned before, even new makeup. All of these are ways that we kind of distract ourselves and we push that pain down the road a little bit just to feel okay in the moment. Um, we also hide ourselves by skipping activities. We sit out of social events and sports and things that we really want to do because we don't want to be looked at. We don't go up for promotions or speak in front of the room and you know raise our hand in a meeting because we don't want to be seen. These are primarily issues that affect women today. And they affect girls starting at, you know, in sixth grade when they stop raising their hands in class and, and doing good at math, because that's not a feminine thing to do. It has these ripple effects throughout our lives. So these disruptions, people think of it in such a negative way. They push them down these roads of harmful coping mechanisms and just having to go on another diet and feel such shame. But Lexi and I, through our PhD research, we identified a way out and that's through this model of body image resilience. When you can see your disruptions as an opportunity to look around, to make changes, to rethink the way you would normally cope because you have this goal of being whole in your body, not being separated from your body any longer, then you can practice a few skills that are so much better for you and so much happier even in the moment than the crash diets and things that we tend to go on. And so our whole book is about, it maps out these ways that we can access that resilience through rethinking our media environment and the body image environment that's been created by the people around us, the things we're watching and viewing. Um, we go into depth on how we see ourselves and the way that self-objectification can be uprooted through some serious self-reflection, um, some really practical strategies there. 
and also in the ways we see other people and the ways we communicate with other people and the way they communicate with us, we've got to reach out to others. And then finally, one of the the strategies that's most impactful is in how we use our bodies. So our whole mantra is my body is an instrument, not an ornament. It's an instrument for your use, your experience, your benefit, not anyone else's. And that changes everything about the way you view your health. If you were thinking of your health in terms of how you look, your BMI, what size you fit into, then you are objectifying your health. It's this depersonalized thing that's outside of you. But when you take back your health for yourself and you're focused on internal indicators, how your body's really doing on the inside, how you are actually feeling, what you are capable of doing, all of that can reframe your perspective that gives you power back to be able to be at home in your body and to appreciate it for all that it is, even in its failures, because we've all got those. Um, And that is really the key to body image resilience is tapping into all of those strategies that allow you to turn a negative disruption into one that is actually enabling. And I think I love everything that you just said. And it's so important to remember all of these different tools and that how like if one tool isn't working for you right now, that's okay. Like try another one. You know, there are different tools for different, you know, steps along your body image journey. Right. But I think one of the most important things that really ties all of these together is Unlike diet and fitness culture and the way that we view health as very like yes or no, black and white, you know, like being kind of like mutually exclusive, all of these tools and everything, you're in the gray. There's no black and white anymore, right? And I think that's one of the best tools of resilience that we can teach people. Like you mentioned before, the culture that we live in you're not you're never going to be able to just remove yourself entirely from the culture even if you remove yourself from the external triggers there's probably still going to be some internal ones right and so acknowledging to people that this isn't you're on a 30-day diet or you're off the walls right like this is a journey where you know and christina and i when we work with people in some of our courses we call this like a road bump navigation manual acknowledging that there are going to be these hard things that come up and when you stumble when you fall over that doesn't mean you're back to square one. It just means it's a learning experience. It's like, okay, that was hard. Um, Let me feel that a little bit and then acknowledge like I have tools to move forward, right? And so I think one of the things kind of related that, um, you know, when when a parent or a friend or somebody notices that someone is in that normative discontent or somebody's in discomfort and they're trying to make them feel better, but they're still in the culture of objectification, right? So one thing you said in the book is like the moment that you respond to somebody, whether they're a child or an adult being called fat by saying like, that's not nice or, you know, she's not fat, she's beautiful. You're actually setting up that descriptor of fat as being the opposite of beautiful and good and worthy. And so you're still throwing them back into this black and white mentality of like, fat is bad, skinny is good, healthy is good, skinny is healthy. So then you're just continually on this same like broken record. So how in that conversation, if you either view that as a parent or friend or whatever, what is one way that you can help people kind of like reroute that conversation as opposed to being like, no, she's not fat. You know, fat is bad. All the things. I think that's such a good point because diet culture is extremist. A culture of objectification is extremist. Fat is bad and thin is good. And anything that gets you toward thin is good. And anything that might push you toward fat is bad. That is where the real issue comes in because what we want to do to counteract that is to value body diversity 
to value our bodies for what they allow us to do and experience to value them because they are our home. We were literally born into the same bodies that we sit in right now. And that's such an incredible gift that we lose track of when we are only valuing them for how they look from the outside. And without a doubt, those looks are going to be disappointing because we are holding them up to ideals that were never meant to be attainable. They never were. And so we feel such extreme feelings toward our bodies, toward food, toward other people's bodies. And of course our impulse to little kids especially, is to say, oh, no, 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 you're not fat. You're beautiful. You're perfect just the way you are, just like you said. That is our natural reaction because fat has been set up in this black and white extremist perspective as being bad, whereas thin is good. What we need to do to counteract that is to put the nuance back into how we value our bodies and ourselves. Body diversity is one of the most important things, especially to expose kids to from a very early age. Um, that is made possible through media and also made difficult through the most popular options of media. So parents need to go into this with a really conscious perspective that we need our kids to see a wide variety of body shapes and sizes and what those characters and people are being valued for. So if the women look a bunch of different ways, but they're still only the romantic interest that motivates the lead, that's not good enough. That's still objectification because they're probably being valued for how beautiful the lead thinks they are. So what we need to do is to take out the discussion about how people look starting really early. So in the households that I've been a part of in um, you know little kids that I'm familiar with, we always make a conscious effort to not talk about the way people look, especially not their body size. But naturally, little kids are going to say things about that. And they're going to pick up cues from all over the place about whether someone's fat or skinny or whatever. And I have definitely had um, my niece say to me, you have such a big bum, <laughs> which now just makes me laugh so hard. And it's like the cutest thing ever. And I do have a big bum. So this is accurate. And so that's what I leaned into. That's true. And there's no negativity in that. She's not trying to say, ew, you're gross, or, you know, I don't think you're pretty or whatever. She is stating a fact. I have a big bum. I was laying on the ground on my stomach and she like jumped on my back and, you know, slapped my butt or something. And this is something that you should play into and not take offense to. What I said is I do have a big bum and it works so well for me. You know, like I'm very strong and, and you can really just focus on the fact that that is normal. It's normal. I don't need her to think that it's the best and that you have to have a big bum to be happy or beautiful or whatever. I just want her to know that, yeah, that's true. And you have a, a little bum too. You know, your bum might be bigger someday. We all have different sizes and shapes and bellies and bums and whatever. You normalize that stuff by taking the stigma out of it, by kind of owning it, you know, for somebody who, yeah, I've dealt my whole life with, you know, fear of being fat. I grew up in the 2000s disgusting diet culture, like so many of us did. And it took a long time to uproot that in myself, but I have uprooted it in myself. And I can pass that on to little kids in conversation with other people, um, in conversation with parents and people who are passing that on to their little kids. I, um, when I've heard something like that, that's kind of a negative example of that. I'll try to jump in. So in particular, when somebody comments a little kid that I'm with or something, like one of my nieces and says, oh, you're so beautiful. Or, you know, look at those skinny little legs or something. I will say uh, a mantra that we have taught one of my little nieces to memorize is my body is an instrument, not an ornament. And it's kind of funny when she chimes in and says, um, yeah, my body is an instrument, not an ornament. And you can kind of laugh and have a little conversation about, and she's done that too. 
And you can say, um, to be totally candid, we're really working on making sure that she knows she's more than just cute. And you know, that's so hard in this world today where we value little princesses and everyone for how they look. So yeah, in our house, we're working really hard to make sure that she knows beauty is not the most important thing. So yeah, I get it. She is the cutest thing in the whole world, but we're trying really hard <laughs> not to focus on that. When you can be vulnerable and real and kind of bring some humor into it, that's how you disarm people. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm not trying to say that like, no, fat is good. We should, you know, celebrate that in me or whatever. So you can, that might be a good thing for some people. But for me, my practice is to disarm people, bring some vulnerability and some humor into it. I love that. And it reminds me of my daughter actually before, I think maybe it was like two days ago, I texted Dana about a story about my daughter. We were going for a walk and I had pulled our shorts out because it's getting hot here on the East Coast. And <laughs> she turned to me and she goes, Mommy, your shorts are too small. You need a new size. I go, Mommy does need a new size. I was like, these are old. It's like, I haven't worn these in a long time, sweetheart. And so we were kind of joking around about it. And she goes, I need new pants too. I'm like, oh, are yours too tight? Maybe we need to get new pants for you. She goes, yes, I'm growing big. And I was like, that's so, it's like so cute how she sees things just the way she sees them and there's nothing charged behind it. And the more that we react with the same exact kind of seeing it as they're saying it and not charging anything behind it, you can create that same internal dialogue for them. Like to me, when she said, you know, your pants are getting tight, I thought to myself, yeah, you know what they are. <laughs> like they are and that's it. And um, she's two and a half. And I just want people to hear this too. She's two and a half. And she's already talking about Oh, I look so pretty mommy when she put a necklace on or anything. And I've been reading to her um, the book her body can. And I've turned to her when I've said that and I'm going to use that your body's an instrument not an ornament. I love that. And something um, in that book, it says you're so much more than brains, bones and muscle. And I've been saying that to her. I said, honey, you are beautiful. And you're so much more than that. You know, you're so much more than brains, bones and muscle. And um, I think that's such an important message for for kids to hear. And she's two and a half. She's two and a half. And she's already hearing these types of conversations and so the more that we can do to help our younger generation not have what we have had to fight really hard to get through um I think is so important and um I love the saying to your niece um your body's an instrument not an ornament and I love that and I cannot wait for my my spicy little two and a half year old to say that to somebody because she will because uh, if you try to hold her hand and she doesn't want to, she goes, no, that's my body. No touching. Like she, she, has, <laughs> Love that. she has no problem saying it. So I can't wait to hear her say my body is an instrument, not an ornament. Well, can you imagine like just a little kid who parents, depending on where they are, or like other people who are in their own, you know, tunnel of like body image stuff. And then you see this like three, four-year-old, whatever, say, excuse me, my body is an instrument, not an ornament. They would be like, <gasps> like, okay, listeners can't see my face, but just imagine someone being like probably external and also internally shocked of like, oh my God, this, this three-year-old is like more woke about their body image than I am. Like maybe that could be a spark for them to start thinking about this of like, oh my gosh, I have I been thinking about my body as, you know, an object my entire life, which like, spoiler alert, probably. So mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. And I think that just reveals the power of rooting out the stigma in ourselves against our own bodies, against fatness, all of the things that we've been taught are, you know, not good because it's so easy to pass that on to little kids, whether you know it or not. Like they hear you when you say, Oh no, I'm not going to eat that cake today because I got to fit into my swimsuit tomorrow. They hear those things and, and it shapes the way they see themselves and the way they see you and other people. And that is kind of the final message in our book is this idea that it might take some hard work, some sacrifice. We might have to forego some choices, some activities, products, services, whatever, that might make me look better right now. Like I know that I would look great with eyelash extensions. Like that would probably just, you know, take my look to the next level. Botox any day now is going to, you know, would be so helpful for me. I know all these things, but I am making the choice to forego a lot of these new innovations in beauty stuff because I know the effect that it will not only have on me in terms of like raising the bar for what looks like me and myself just to feel okay in my body, but also raises the bar for anyone who comes after me, for people who look to me to see normal, just to see regular. What does it look like to be a woman who's growing up? What does it look like to be 35? What does it look like to be whatever age people are expecting something to look like? And when you can be just a quiet example of just reality, without the stigma, without the apologizing, even without the celebrating, that goes such a long way to normalizing just reality, just regular living, aging, being in a human body for kids, but also people your own age and older. We can make a big impact on our own parents and grandparents and even people at work, things like that. I see an impact all the time of being able to alleviate some of that pressure that people feel to up their own beauty routine, their own weight loss regimen and plans or whatever. You can do that for people. Speaking of swimsuits, I love, so it was funny because we always do a lot of research, whether we're reading a book or, you know, website, Instagram, whatever, for our guests to see like what questions we want to ask them. And I saw you had a blog post from like, I think it was like 2017 or 2018 talking about like bikini bodies and stuff. And then it was in the book and I was like, perfect. I'm going to ask about this. Can you talk about why it's so problematic that now wearing a bikini and posting the proof on Instagram has become the gold standard for demonstrating body confidence and body positivity. Yes. So so it fits into the same conversation about objectification because what we're saying when we value bikini bodies at the expense of everything else related to your body image is that your body image means you think your body looks great. Having positive body image means I think I look hot. Look at me. You know, I don't care what you think of me because I think I look amazing. That gets you away from what real positive body image is. If we set some standard, like you need to, if you feel good about your body, you got to wear a bikini, go to the beach, post it on Instagram, you know, celebrate it for all the world. Then we're putting back that, that objectifying standard on women to have to not only love the way their bodies look and find their greatest value and their highest source of positive body image from the way they look, even if it's different from what they've seen in the mainstream. But we're also telling other people to value that in us as well when we post it online. In the book and in that blog post, we talked about how it's become the greatest proof of having positive body image and having confidence. But in reality, it's just a swimsuit. And what we need to do is to take the power away from that to say, you know, maybe your highest level of confidence will come from not having the pressure 
to wear the tiniest amount of clothing you can in public and post it on the internet. Because when you're doing that, you might be thinking about the way your body looks the entire time. You might be just further retrenching into self-objectification as you are wearing this thing that you're uncomfortable in, where your body is more exposed than you're comfortable with and constantly having to think about, am I sucking in my stomach or my thighs posed in a way where the cellulite isn't showing? You know the mental script that runs through your head when you're wearing something that you're not comfortable in. That doesn't mean you don't feel good about your body. It means that this objectifying culture is pushing you to think constantly about the way your body looks and wearing a bikini might not help you out at this point in your life. Maybe it will in the future, but not right now. Let's take the power away from bikinis. They're just swimsuits. And what you need to do to feel good in your body um, and proving it can't be shown in a picture because body confidence doesn't come from a picture and it can't be proved by that. It's in how you live your life. Are you going to show up and do the things that you want to do regardless of how you look? Then you're living your life. Then you're finding that real satisfaction and fulfillment of practicing body image resilience, not just putting on a show of like, I must feel pretty great about my body if I'm showing you this much of it, right? Don't you like it too? It can really get twisted. It can get so twisted. And I think one of the things that um, ends up happening too a lot of times, now this isn't, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I'm speaking for some people, especially when we're kind of entrenched in personal experience. I know that when I've posted pictures of myself in a bikini, and this was way pre like my non-diet world and probably when I was like in the heat of my own stuff, um, I used to use that as a comparison back to myself. Yes. Right? You go back and you look at it later and you're like, oh, I'm not as good as I was then. Like, what was I doing at that point in my life that I looked so great? It's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I was over, like, over exercising and under eating. I don't, you know, maybe I had an eating disorder at that time. And so I think one of the things that that's why when we, when we put that on there, I know from my own personal experience when I've done that before, um, in the past, there's a big difference between times when I posted a picture of myself because I was just genuinely happy and we were having a fun family moment or whatever and I happened to be in a bathing suit and they capture that versus a time where I went into auto-tune afterwards, edited it, changed the lighting around in Lightroom and then posted it. There's a huge difference between the two things. One is a representation of me just being happy in my life and another one of me looking for objectification and looking for someone to validate how I was feeling in my body in that moment. And I think that's a really big distinction that I think often gets missed in the in the body, like in the hashtag BOPO world. We don't know what went into that photo. Yeah. Yeah. That's our little section on selfie objectification is really similar to that because a lot of people post selfies saying, I feel so great, you know, like... I don't care what you think of me. This is the way I look right now. And of course they're posting the picture because they do think they look great. And that's awesome. I'm not knocking that at all. The issue is when we are posting those as a show of our body confidence and when we're using selfies to prove how good we feel about ourselves, what really went on behind the scenes is exactly what you said. There's 150 selfies from slightly different angles. You're going through cropping, filtering, maybe auto-tuning. A lot of people admit to doing that. And you are not simply capturing like one image where it's just capturing who you are right now and you feel great. You are putting on a false show of who you are and how you feel about yourself in hopes that other people will like and comment and validate it. And no one can say, oh yeah, I never look at the likes, who cares? Because you get a little dopamine rush from every single notification that comes in. Of course you care. That's why we post these things on the internet. So just be, be really critical of your own motivations. 
when you're posting content online, how you represent yourself, um, all of it, I think, can a lot of times be tied back to this objectifying culture that says, if you look good, you'll feel good and everyone else will love you for it. And we just need to dismantle that in our own minds, take some time to pause and think, how am I really feeling? What am, where am I getting my value in this moment? And can I get it from somewhere internal or a little more holistic and fulfilling than how I appear? Well, when, when you look at this whole, it's so disordered. If you look good, you feel good. Then we immediately go into fixing mode. And this is where diet and fitness culture comes in in the first place. And then people realize if they have been on some kind of, you know, like health or weight loss journey or body transformation or something, when they get to that, what they thought was their gold standard of like, oh, now I look good. They're never actually satisfied with that body. So they don't actually feel good. So it's like, oh, Maybe it wasn't external. Maybe what I needed to change was the internal part all along. Mm -hmm. People need to know that. They need to know that that final destination, we call it an oasis in our book, in the waters of objectification, um, that goal that they have where they will look good and feel good, it is a mirage. It's not real. Think back to the time when, like in your bikini photo, when you were the skinniest, were you the happiest, the most fulfilled with your life? No. Maybe in some cases you were, but it wasn't related to how your body looked in that moment. We need to value these bodies that we are in right at this moment so we can maximize our lives instead of waiting for 10, 15, 20, 100 pounds from now before we will be able to really feel good. Feeling good is not related to how you look. When we dismantle that, we take the power out of it so we can get back into our real bodies where we are right now. Oh, Lindsay, this has been such a wonderful conversation and I feel really charged and excited, <laughs> excited just hearing you talk about it. I think this is such important messages. And I don't know, I just really have loved having you on today and having this conversation about kind of taking away and being, like you said, more than a body. And imagine all the things that we could do if we stopped swimming in this treacherous sea of, of uh, self-objectification and how much we could have the capacity to do, right? And the confidence to do in our lives. And that's really what we want for everybody. So thank you so much. I know that's what you guys want, right? And in what you guys wrote in your book. And it's just incredible. And thank you so much for this amazing conversation and so much food for thought for all of our listeners. And so do you want to tell us a little bit here as we wrap up um, where people can find you. We've referenced your books, your book a few times. But... It'll be in the show notes 87 times. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> That's the best. Thank you both so much. You ask great questions. So it's really nice to talk to experts really doing good work in this field. I love that so much. Um, so we are on Instagram at beauty underscore redefined. Um, we, we wrote our book, which is the hardest thing we've ever done. And the best thing we've ever done too. We're so excited about it. It was just published in December. The title is More Than a Body. Your Body is an Instrument, Not an Ornament by Lindsay and Lexi Kite, PhD. And so if you Google that, it's literally everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, it's on shelves wherever you go and indie bookstores as well. Um, we would love for you to buy the book and share it if you feel that it's helpful. That's really the best thing you can do. Our website is morethanabody.org and you can find everything else there. Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your family and friends, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and if you can, we would absolutely love it if you left a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies with wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me or Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling or checking out our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. And we'll see you again here next week.